Now let's take our Bibles, friends. Let's turn to the passage that we read earlier. Incredible passage from God's Word about the New Covenant. That's Hebrews chapter 8. If you turn there again, page 1005. For those who are using the Bibles that are provided for you there. Hebrews chapter 8. We continue our journey through this wonderful book. It's all about the theme that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Nothing can be compared to him. He is better. You know, several years ago, I was at uh, home uh, working uh, downstairs in, in my study. And uh, my son, Stephen, at that time, maybe about 10 years of age, uh, came down there just to hang out from time to time. And so uh, he came down on this occasion. He was sitting in there doing some stuff. And while I was working over there at the desk, he, he asked me this question. He said, Dad, did you years ago have one of those old-fashioned computers? And I said, what? He said, you know, one of those old-fashioned computers. I said, I don't know what you mean. He said, you know, the kind that you had to wind up after every line. I said, what do you mean? He said, you know, you do the keys and you had to wind it up every, at the end of every line. And I said, you mean a typewriter? And he said, is that what it's called? Right then, I knew it. I'm old. <laughs> okay. I mean, it hit me right then. I'm old. I'm old. One of those old-fashioned wind-up computers, okay? Well, I understand some people maybe prefer to peck away at a typewriter. I understand that. I, I watched an interview one time with Pulitzer Prize-winning author David McCullough and he's been using the same typewriter since the 1940s and has a little place out in the back of his house where he goes out and works on those manuscripts. So he, he does that. And uh, believe it or not, I saw a news article one time here locally about that there was a typewriter repairman here in Knoxville. Typewriter repairman. Now, you know, he's so busy he can hardly keep up. I'm sure he's just, he's just swamped. Okay. <laughs> Typewriter repairman. Well, for the average person, okay, typewriter or computer, okay? Typewriter, computer. With computer, you have access to all types, incredible amount of information. You have way of communication, not just typing, you know, and... Uh, and erasing and getting the, you remember the getting the tape, having to get that. Wasn't that the nastiest stuff you ever had to, try, you know, test your salvation. I'm telling you, when that thing would happen. Printing, you can type and you can print, you can save. It's all kinds of material, storage of material. Typewriters were great. They serve their purpose, but I think we'd all agree, for the most part, they're now old. They're obsolete. They, they have faded away, and, and they're in the process of fading away. And that's exactly the idea that the writer of Hebrews is sharing here in chapter 8. It's his exact point as he's talking about there's a better way. There's a better way. There's a new covenant. That's a better covenant. The old covenant is obsolete. 
And this old covenant is fading away. But there is a new and better covenant through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what I want us to do is just review just a little bit as we begin here in chapter 8 this morning. And recognize that he's been sharing with us for a number of verses. Matter of fact, you can go all the way back to chapter 4 and beginning at verse 14. And all the way through these first couple of verses in chapter 8. And he's talking about the same thing. What is the writer talking about? Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Jesus Christ, who is a better Priest, and he brings a better priesthood. Now, why is that? Well, let's remind ourselves. It's because, first of all, Jesus is eternally existing. He's eternally existing. Look back, if you would, at chapter 7, verse 23. It says this, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Verse 24 but he holds the priesthood permanently because he continues, next word, forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus has brought a better priesthood that has ever existed or could exist because he's the only one who is eternally existing. Also said that Jesus offers a better priesthood. Secondly, because Jesus is eternally exalted. He's eternally exalted. Look at the last verse of chapter 7. The last verse. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, that is, it was prophesied by David in Psalms, this law of the oath appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. We have a high priest not only who is eternally existing, but he's eternally exalting in the presence of God, and he is exalted above every other name. Right, church? Every other name. Now, Jesus is a better high priest because he's eternally existing. He's eternally exalted. But now look at verse 1, because Jesus is eternally enthroned. He's internally, eternally enthroned. Now, the point which we are saying is this. Now, here's what the writer's doing. This is what I've been saying for these last seven chapters. He doesn't know they're chapters because they were added later on for us. But he says, this is what I've been saying up to this point. This is the sum of it all. We have a, such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. He's eternally enthroned. We have a priest who has done what no other priest can do. He has completed his sacrifice, and now he has sat down, right, at the right hand of the Father. When Jesus said, it is finished, guess what? It was finished. Nothing to be added to it. Absolutely complete 
And when he rose and then 40 days later ascended, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, eternally existing, eternally exalted, and now he's eternally enthroned in heaven. What a priest we have, right? What a priest we have. But now notice, and here's what we're going to discuss this morning and as the writer opens it to our heart. We have a better priesthood because Jesus is eternally engaged. He is at his work day and night. Yes, he has sat down at the right hand of God, but day and night he is continually, actively engaged in his service as a high priest. He's always there. He's always working. And aren't you glad he never takes a day off? Aren't you glad he's not just saying out for a little while? No, he is always there day and night interceding by his very presence. He is interceding, working, serving as a high priest. Now just think about that. Think about how Jesus is serving. Verse 2 says, He is serving as a minister in the holy place. That word minister there means a sacred servant. One who serves like a priest. A sacred servant. He's serving God. He is a minister in the holy place. In the very presence of God. In that true tent that the Lord set up. Not man. Now, where is Jesus serving? He is serving in the tent, the tabernacle, it might be translated, the tent that the Lord set up, not set up by man. Verse 2 says that he has set this up, not man, and that it is the true tent. It's the true tent. Now, what does that mean, that Jesus is gone to be serving in the true tent. Well, it's a reference, of course, back to the Old Testament when God told Moses to make a tent and God would dwell with his people in that tent. It was also called sometimes a tabernacle. It existed for nearly 400 years until it was succeeded by the temple in Jerusalem. But God initially established a tent and he says, now Jesus is serving in that true tent. That doesn't mean the tent that went before in the old covenant was false. What this means is that Jesus is serving in the ultimate tent, in the ultimate holy place that God set up, not man. It has been set up by God. Now, put yourself as a Jewish person reading this sometime in maybe the early 60s AD. You're a believer in Jesus or you're thinking about being a believer in Jesus and here you have the, the, the writer saying that the temple, the temple now in Jerusalem, one of the seven wonders of the world, one of the seven wonders of the world, the sacred center of the people of Israel for over a thousand years 
with thousands of priests who are serving that this fabulous building, this incredible service is not the ultimate place of worship. It's not the ultimate place of God. Imagine how you would receive that. Notice what he says about this. Notice what the Lord calls this this tabernacle, this tent, or even this temple. Verse 5, notice what he calls it. He says, for they serve a copy and a shadow. This temple in Jerusalem, this one of the seven wonders of the world, covered with gold and adorned with priceless jewels, served by thousands of priests, it is a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you in the mountain. Now notice here, notice. He calls the, the tabernacle, the tent, which is now the temple in Jerusalem, he calls it a, a copy. You see that? That, that word copy there, hupodegma, it means literally like you are sketching on something. If, you're, if you are trying to copy something, you might put a thin piece of paper over the original, and now you're trying to trace on top of that. That's exactly what he says here. He says that temple in Jerusalem, with all of its beauty, and the tent that went before, listen, it's just like a sketch of the real. It's not, a, it's not the original. It's just a sketch of the original. That's the reason God said, Moses, when you construct this tabernacle, you make sure that you follow the pattern that I gave you in the mount. And so it's like Moses came down with the plan and the people built the tabernacle like over a sketch over the plan. He says it's like a, a, a sketch. It's like a shadow. He says this, this temple, which was preceded by the tabernacle, it's not even worthy to com- be compared to what is the real place of worship. It's like a shadow. Now let's make sure here, let's, let's make sure we're following the writer's thinking here, okay? He's saying, listen carefully, the tabernacle, which became the temple, the priesthood, all the rituals, the sacrificial system of 1,400 years or more is just a copy. It's just a sketch. It's only a shadow. Now, what is the temple, the tabernacle? What is the priesthood? What is the ritual system, the sacrificial system? It is the outward symbols of the covenant. This is his point. Are you following his point? He's saying everything that has been done in the Jewish worship 
for 1,500 years. All the sacrificial system, all the laws regarding the rituals, all the priesthood, all the incredible plans, all that's gone before is just a copy. It's just a shadow of the ultimate covenant. All that it represents is the old covenant, but there is something that is so new that everything that's gone before is just like a copy and a shadow. He's saying the new covenant is better. It's a better covenant. All these rituals, everything that you've done, all these ways, they were appointed by God, but they were only appointed for a season as a copy, as a shadow, until the ultimate reality would come of the new covenant. Now, that's what the writer is going to discuss in chapters 8, 9, and 10. He's going to talk about this new covenant. Everything that's gone before is obsolete. It's fading away. And it has been replaced by a better covenant, a brand new covenant. So he's saying it's a better covenant because the new covenant has a preeminent place. I want you to notice this in verse 6. Notice he says... There is the preeminence of the new covenant. The new covenant has superseded, if you will, the old covenant. Look at verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry. Jesus is better. That's the theme, right? Christ, the Messiah, has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, that's the old covenant, he mediates, and we'll come back to that word, he mediates a better covenant, and it is enacted on better promises. He says, the new has come, and there's a better priest, there's a, there are better principles, and there are better promises that have come in this new covenant now what are you saying here if there's been a change in the priesthood there's been a change in the covenant look back if you would at chapter 7 verse 12 that's exactly what he said there would you look at chapter 7 verse 12 he says for when there is a change in the priesthood there is necessarily a change in the law do you follow his thinking he's saying listen it's not just that the old priesthood has been replaced by a new kind of priesthood. It's more than that. The old priesthood has been replaced by one priest forever, eternally exalted, eternally throned, eternally existing, eternally engaged. And he has brought a brand new covenant. The old has passed the new has come. Jesus is better. And he wants this to grip them. He wants them to be gripped by the excellence of Jesus. Why turn back? Why go back to the old ways? Why go back to the old covenant 
when you've got Jesus, what could be compared to him, right? Verse number 6. Again, he says, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, much more excellent than what's going on in Jerusalem at the Temple Mount. He says it's much more excellent because he is the mediator. He mediates a better covenant with better promises. Now, I want to pause here for a moment. How many feel like we're kind of in deep water this morning? Can anybody feel that way? You're kind of quiet out there. And sometimes that's good. Sometimes it bugs the fool out of me, okay? <laughs> this is deep stuff. But here's what I want you to pause and think about. He uses two terms. And if you don't understand these terms, you miss the whole point. But when you understand them and they grip your heart, you will leave here this morning with glory in your spirit. Notice what these two key terms are. The first term is covenant. Covenant. He says Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Now the word here and elsewhere in the New Testament for covenant is the Greek word diatheke. Diatheke. And it translates an Old Testament word, a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word in the Old Testament is berith, berith. It means literally to cut. The word covenant comes from the Hebrew root word berith, which has the meaning to cut. So how, how does the idea of a covenant and a cutting go together? It, it's the idea of a contract. And how a contract was made in ancient times. A contract was seen to be a sacred witness. It was a sacred pledge. And it was made with a sacred witness. When you make a covenant, you're calling God to witness. So that many times when a covenant was made, there was the sacrifice of an animal. One, part, one party of the covenant would stand on one side of the animal. Another party of the covenant would stand on the other side of the, uh, of the animal. And the animal would be sacrificed. It would, there would be a cutting, which was saying, we're calling God as witness that we are going to fulfill our obligations. We are going to keep this covenant. There's been a cutting and if we fail, the idea here is if we fail to fulfill this covenant, may God do to us what's happened to this sacrifice. As a matter of fact, many times when a covenant was made, you know what they would do? They would cut the animal completely in half. And the two people making the contract would arm in arm walk between the two pieces of the sacrifice saying, God is witness, we will keep this covenant. And if we violate this covenant, may God do to us what's happened to this animal. Covenant was a pretty sacred thing, pretty serious, right? Sometimes when two people were so devoted to each other, though, they'd make another kind of covenant. 
a blood covenant. You remember how David and Jonathan, his dearest friend, the son of Saul, made a blood covenant? Remember that? They pledged each other. They made a covenant, and the idea is a cutting. Probably what happened here is David and Jonathan, they made a cut in each other's palms of the hands, and they joined their hands, mingling their blood, that they were considered as one. And one took his garments and put it on Jonathan. Jonathan put his priestly, his king's garments, the son of a king, on David. And they swore an oath to each other to protect each other. There was a blood covenant that was made between them as strong or even stronger than any family tie could be. Now, that's what a covenant means. A covenant is a sacred contract that's made before God. But now, listen carefully. The word here for covenant is not the typical word that's used for a covenant. The typical word that was used just for a contract was not the word diatheke, but suntheke, meaning with, to, to join with. But the word here is a different word, diatheke, and you know what it almost always refers to in Greek other than the New Testament, it means a will, a final testament. The word for covenant here is a final covenant, a final testament, a last will and testament. Now, why would God use a word like that to describe the new covenant? Here's the reason. Because the new covenant has nothing to do with man. It has everything to do with God. It's God's covenant. It's not a covenant that man makes with God. It's a covenant that God makes with people. It's a covenant that's made by God himself. It's planned by God himself. It's executed by God himself. It's carried out by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's God's testament. That's the word here. It's a new covenant. Not like a covenant made between the nation and God, but a covenant made by God himself with people through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's the second word. The second word there is the word mediate. Do you see that? Mediates. Verse 6. He mediates a better covenant. What's the word mediator? Mediator means to stand between. Christ mediates a new covenant. He stands between. Who does Jesus stand between? He stands between sinful man and a holy God. And he is the God-man. He's the one and only God-man. He's the only person that ever existed who can represent God fully and represent man fully because he's fully God and fully man at the same time. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who's able to reach out, take hold of God, and take hold of sinful man and bring them together and reconcile them. And the only way he can do that is if he mediates it himself with his own death. He mediates. He pays the price. He carries out the obligations. 
And God raises him from the dead because God's justice has been satisfied. And now there is in heaven one person who can stand for God and stand for sinners and bring them together, and that's the man Christ Jesus. And that's a better covenant, wouldn't you say? That's a better covenant. It's guaranteed by Jesus. He is the guarantor of a better covenant. Look at chapter 7, verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor. The word there is the surety. He's the one who pays the price. He's the one who takes the obligations. His obligation to God was a sinless life. His obligation to man was to be our substitute and sacrifice. And by being the sinless son of God and a sinner sacrifice, he is the guarantee of a brand new covenant. Praise God. That's the reason the Bible says this. There is one God. There are not many gods. There is one God. And there is one mediator. There is one person who stands between God and man and can bring them together. And that is the man Christ Jesus. That is the gospel. But friends, listen to me. It is an exclusive gospel. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And what? No one comes to the Father but by me. There are not many ways to God. There's one God. And there's one way to God. And that way to God is through his son, Jesus Christ, who himself is the door. And he is the mediator, the new covenant. And anyone can come to God through him. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Now, that's the preeminence of the new covenant. But what was the problem with the old covenant? What was the problem? Well, the problem was this. Not that there was something wrong with the old covenant itself. What was the problem? And why did it have to be replaced? Look at verse 7. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Here, faultless does not mean there was something wrong in the first covenant. It was created by God. God can't create bad stuff. God doesn't create junk. This was his covenant, but it wasn't faultless. Why? It wasn't complete in the sense that it could not be fulfilled, but the problem wasn't with God. The problem was with the people. Look at verse 8. This is very carefully. Make sure you mark a word here. For he finds fault with them. Not it. It's not it. The fault he finds is not with the old covenant. The fault that he finds with is with them, the people. He says now down in verse number 9, They did not continue in my covenant, and I, was, I showed no concern for them. See, the problem is not with the principles of the old covenant. The problem is we can't keep it. We don't have the ability. We don't have the strength to keep the old covenant. Their problem is our problem too. 
Not just Israel's problem that couldn't keep the covenant. It's our problem too. Romans chapter 7 verse 12 says this. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Notice what it says the law is. Holy, righteous, and good. God's law, his old covenant, holy, righteous, and good. But what's the problem? The problem's our problem. Look at verse 14 of Romans 7. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. I am a sinner, you are a sinner, and we can't keep the old covenant. We can't live up to the obligations. Israel could not do it. They were rebels. We cannot do it in our own nature because we are by nature rebels against God. We can't do it. We're helpless. But guess what, friends? Listen carefully. Helpless doesn't mean hopeless. Amen? There's hope. We are helpless. We can't save ourselves. But we're not hopeless because there is one who has undertaken to make a covenant and keep it himself and make the obligation and pay the obligation for sinners. And that one who's done that is God himself in Christ. He made his own covenant and he said, I'll come down and keep it myself for the people who cannot keep it. What a God we serve. What a God we serve. God to the rescue. That's what the new covenant is. And what promises he gives. The promises of the new covenant. Verses 8 through 12 talks about a new covenant. Now listen carefully. It's a new covenant that was promised back under the old covenant. 600 years earlier... God had promised through his prophet Jeremiah, I'm going to make a new covenant. It shouldn't have taken the Jewish people by surprise that there was a new covenant coming. Because one of their greatest prophets, Jeremiah, had spoken for God 600 years earlier and said a new covenant is coming. God said 600 years earlier, a new covenant is coming. And that's what the writer does. He quotes... Jeremiah, and verse number 8, down through verse 12. Do you see that in, in Hebrews chapter 8? Verses 8 through 12 are a direct quote from Jeremiah about God's promise of a new covenant. Verses 8 through 9, he finds fault with them. That is the people. He says that they can't do this. They are always going astray from me. So behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I, I myself, will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with them, with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to take them out of the land of Egypt. That's the Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea. You remember that? Slaves taken out of slavery by the sacrifice and led to freedom by their 
he wrote God. God led them to the wilderness, took them to Mount Sinai. He entered into a covenant with them. Verse 9, but they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. But now notice, he says he's going to make a new covenant. A covenant of God's provision. He's going to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. He and his grace is going to act on their behalf. And it's complete sovereign grace. Man has nothing to do with it. Man cannot keep God's law. Man is a sinner. We're sinners sold under sin. So God himself, in incredible, loving, sovereign grace, acts on our behalf. And here's his promise. His promise, verse 10. There will be an internal revelation that's going to happen in people's hearts. Verse 10. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into tablets of stone. Is that what your Bible says? No. I will put my laws into their minds. I, I myself, will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. What is he saying? I'm going to give them a new heart. Ezekiel spoke for God and said, I'm going to take away the heart of stone and I'm going to put a heart of flesh in the people and I will myself write my words on their hearts. I'm going to give them a new birth. They will know me. I will come and into their life and I will put my will into their very hearts. And then he says, they're going to know me in a personal relationship. Look at verse 10. He says, I will be their God. They shall be my people. And they shall not each teach each other. His neighbor, each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least to the greatest. Not just the rabbis. Not just the, the people, the learned and the trained. But I'm going to come into their hearts and I'm going to be their God, and they will know me personally, and I will be their God. They will be my people, from the least of them to the greatest. Wow, what a covenant. Sounds better, right? Doesn't it sound better? I hope you'll say amen to that. It's a personal relationship, not just national, it's personal. He's talking about Judah and Israel here. And yes, there's going to be a national salvation that comes to the descendants of Abraham one day. The nation is going to come to the Lord. Read Romans chapter 11. But guess what? We come to this relationship with God, not nationally, but we come to him one by time. It's a personal relationship, right? And it's not just for one people, the Jewish people. It's for all people who will believe. I love what Jesus said. This is such a beautiful statement. Jesus said this in John 10. He's talking about the sheep of Israel. The lost sheep of Israel. Then Jesus says this. Other sheep have I 
which are not of this fold. They're not of the Jewish fold. Other sheep I have, they will hear my voice and I must bring them also. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. What was he talking about? I'm bringing some more sheep. And my sheep are going to be one sheep, Jews and Gentiles, one new family, all under my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? The Bible says the gospel goes to the Jews first and also to the Gentiles, that all might believe and become part of one new community You see, friends, God has one community on the earth today. It's his church, his people, Jews and Gentiles who are believers in his son, Jesus Christ. And God says, I'm going to give, here's the last promise, eternal redemption. Eternal redemption. I will be merciful toward their iniquities. Verse 12. And I will remember their sins No more. Thank God. I will be merciful and I will remember their sins no more. How can God forget our sins? How can God not hold us accountable for our sins? Because the mediator, the mediator, the Lord Jesus, paid the price of the covenant. Our sins have not just been overlooked by God. Our sins have not just been forgiven by God. They've been moved away from his presence forever through Jesus, his son. As far as the east is from the west, their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. What incredible promise. Now the writer sums it all up. And I promise I sum up too. Verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant. He makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now listen. This is how we know the book of Hebrews was written before 70 A.D. Because in 70 A.D. is when the temple was destroyed by the Romans. When the writer's writing this, the temple is still there and the service is going, but it's obsolete. It's fading away. And it's about to vanish. He says, why would you turn back to the old covenant? It's vanishing. It's obsolete. Why would you turn away from a Lord like Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant? That old covenant is just a shadow. It's fading away and vanishing. My friends, listen to me this morning. The shadow has vanished. The old covenant has vanished. Don't look to the shadow for your salvation. Don't try to... Keep God's law to earn your salvation. Trust in the Lord Jesus who has paid for your salvation, right? And serve the Lord out of the new life that he gives you in Christ. 
Don't look to the old covenant. Don't look to the law for salvation. Look to Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant. And friends, don't live in the shadow. Don't live in the shadow for sanctification. You're not going to be made holy by trying to keep all these Old Testament laws. You're not going to be able to do it. Where do you look? Where do you look in order for that that work of the Lord of making you more and more like His Son? Where do you look? You don't look to the law and try to fulfill the law yourself. You look to Jesus and ask Him to just make plain that law in your own heart so that you live in freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has made us free. Don't put yourself under the yoke of bondage again. That's what Paul said in Galatians chapter 5. Friends, you know what this means? The new covenant means one thing for us as we live our lives. It means freedom. It means freedom. It means there's not one certain way that everybody has to serve exactly the same. There's not one certain kind of building. There's not one certain kind of person. There's not one certain kind of songs. There's not one certain kind of list. There's not one certain kind of duties and responsibilities. There's freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? There's freedom in Christ. The freedom to live for Him, not under the bondage of the old that we could never keep and it's vanished away, but in the freedom of the new with the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts. And what is the one law of the new covenant? You wonder what it is? Love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know, I think we'd be a lot more free if we'd focus on that first great commandment rather than trying to justify ourselves by keeping old commandments and laws that we could not keep. Freedom is in loving God and loving your neighbor. And where is that love? Is it your love? I don't love God very much. I don't love my neighbor very much. Some of them I don't love much at all. But guess what? What's been poured out in our heart by the new covenant through the Holy Spirit? The love of God has been poured out in our hearts. And we can love God and we can love our fellow man. And there is freedom as we live under the royal commandment of love.